Yeah, it was about uh, it was about Jesus teaching in John chapter 17 on um, the certainty of temptations that would come and on forgiveness. And we passed over a section at the end of chapter 17, which I hope to pick up later when we get to chapter 21 on the Lord's coming. We're going to go right to chapter 18 this morning, but I want you to know that the end of 17 ended with a teaching of Jesus on the sudden but certain return of Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming again. And we're going to spend a little time talking about that in a couple weeks. But he said that you, you are going to um, know that the Lord will return. It will be like it was um, just in the days of Noah at the end of 17 when they were eating and drinking and they weren't paying attention. And then eight people went into the ark and it was a sudden end. And in the days of Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah, the judgment of God at the end was sudden. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be, verse 30 of chapter 17 says, it will be on that day that the Son of Man is revealed. So Jesus began to tell them that he was going to be coming again and that they should be ready. That sets up chapter 18 then of being ready in the in-between of the presence of Jesus in first century Palestine teaching these parables and the promise of his coming at a future time, and how should we live in the in-between? Do you believe that Jesus came more than 2,000 years ago? Do you believe he's coming again? Where is the promise of his coming? Is he really coming? It's the distance between his first coming and the promise of his second coming that leads many people to sort of give up hope, lose heart, and to wonder whether God is really active at all. And what is the connection between his first coming, his death and burial and resurrection, and what was that for, and what is the promise of his second coming, and how do we manage to live all this time when the Lord came... But he's coming to make everything right, but it's not right yet. And the parable of chapter 18, beginning at verse 1, is to help us live in this time. So let's read verse 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. I like it when the parable tells its meaning before it's given. And Luke helps us editorially say, this is what the perils was about, that you don't get discouraged and that you always keep praying. I don't want to lose heart. Let's all say that together. And I need to keep praying. All right, let's close in prayer. That's the message. What if you could live today hopefully, not lose heart. What makes us lose heart? Well, the parable is going to explain in Jesus what makes us lose heart and um, what he promises to do. 
it's a parable that, again, has two characters in it. Verse 2 says, Jesus said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him saying, Give me justice against my adversary. This is the parable of two characters. One is the judge who does not fear God, and he doesn't even care about people. Can you imagine a judge in a federal court system who has no fear of God? Hmm or who doesn't really care about the needs of people. Jesus is telling story. It's a parable. He's making it up, and he is intentionally going to tell the parable of a lesser to greater comparison. And the comparison is that this judge is wicked. He is uh, unrighteous, without inclination to fear or worship God. God is not in his mind, and yet he's sitting, making judgments, uh, on behalf of other people, other people for whom he has no compassion. He doesn't even care about the people who come to his court. This was common in that day that judges would be partial and they would take a bribe. And no matter how bad this judge really felt no shame for being this corrupt, it didn't even bother him that he didn't fear God and he didn't care about people. The woman was a widow, and she kept coming to him. Now, that in and of itself would be a fantastically desperate situation because, number one, she's a, she's a woman, and in the day, women weren't allowed into court by themselves. There had to be a husband, but she's a widow, or a father, or a brother, or an uncle, or a nephew, so she is a woman, she's a widow, and she's poor, and somebody has defrauded her. She's got an adversary who's taken advantage of her, and she keeps coming again and again, verse 3, to this judge. Verse 4, for a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, restated for emphasis, Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. She's wearing me out. So I'm going to give her what she wants so she'll get off my back. I mean, the man has, he is portrayed as the most despised person. And that's Jesus painting a beautiful illustration of why you would lose heart. Why you would lose heart if you were going to a legal system to get justice, but it was postponed and postponed. The judge is wicked and indifferent, doing for the woman ultimately what is right, though he has no concern or compassion for her, no affection for her. He really can't stand her, and the reason he answers is to just get her out of his hair. And so here's where Jesus brings the lesson, verse 6. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. It's as if Jesus says, now listen to what the judge says. Listen to these words. 
I'm going to help her. I'm going to help her out of the worst motives, with the least amount of affection, with the most selfish ambition, I'm going to help this woman and give her the justice that she deserves. Verse 7 is the interpretive verse. And will not God give justice to his elect to cry to him day and night? What's the answer to that question? Yes. Yes, he will. Will not God do this? Jesus is taking the, the illustration, as he often does in a parable, of here's the worst case scenario. And God is so much different. Does God care about his people? Answer? Does he care about justice? Answer? Yes. And will he deliver his people? Answer? Yes. But we cry all day long, all day long, Lord, when is justice going to come? When is justice going to come? And Jesus is telling this parable to say, our God in heaven is not like this judge who doesn't have a fear of what is right. And our God is not like this person who doesn't care about people. Our God is in heaven. He loves his people. He cares for them. He is seeing everything that happens. And one day he's going to make right what is wrong, and he's going to fix every injustice. Will not God give justice? The answer is yes. As they cry to him day and night, will he delay long over them? Mm. No. But doesn't it feel like yes? While we wait for justice to occur, it does. And Jesus is telling this parable that we would not lose heart and that we would always pray. I just want to say today, my thought for you is that prayer in the life of a Christian is the work that we're to be engaged in until the Lord returns. We are in this period in between the comings of Jesus, and it feels like we're, we're never going to see the world made right. And all we have to do is look around and you can see injustice, you can see discrimination and hatred, you can see the life of this judge who doesn't care about people, you can see criminality all over the place, you see all of these manifestations of persecution and rampant evil and wicked judges and the unrighteous prospering and the church of Jesus Christ being persecuted and ridiculed and rejected and the word of God being scoffed at. Are you with me? It's like we live in a day in which the very things that we treasure most, and we say, oh, God, do you not know what is happening here? And Jesus is telling a parable that we should not lose heart and always pray. The primary work of God's people until he comes again is praying, praying. Jesus told this parable so that his disciples would do just that. He is coming, but it is easy to lose heart sometimes. It's sometimes easy to lose heart because we pray and we don't get the answers that we wish we got, or we don't get justice swiftly. Or in many places, it feels like justice is absolutely absent. And Jesus is telling this parable to say, one day when the Lord returns... Remember the context of 17, the Lord is coming back. 
And will he not bring justice? Answer, yes, he will. But we have to wait in the in-between and try not to lose heart. I tell you, he will give them justice speedily. That's a troubling statement. I'll admit it. And so we have to think biblically here. We think biblically in our own minds to be guided not to lose heart about this. Uh, we remember uh, biblically when we look back in the Bible that we remember things were promised and it came to pass, but it came to pass in time. Remember, Abraham was promised that he would be the father of a great nation and it took a lot of time for that to develop. And God told Moses, you would lead my people out of Israel, and it took a lot of time for that to happen. And the prophets came, and they prophesied that there would be a Messiah coming. And one great example is this book we studied in December of Isaiah, when the prophecies about Jesus were given, and it took how many years? 700 years until Jesus entered Bethlehem. And here we are, some of us have lived 30, 40, 50, 60, 80 years, and we're saying, when is justice coming? And we say, well, it, it is. But one day with the Lord is like a thousand years. Remember that? In First Peter, um, let's see. Um, we don't lose heart. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8 and 9. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness. Here's the catch. But He is patient, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. When the Lord delays to bring justice, what is in his mind for waiting? It's his mercy and his compassion. When the Lord comes back, judgment comes with him. When the Lord returns, he will come to rule and reign in righteous judgment, and there will be no window of repentance. So the the Lord is not slow in fulfilling His promise, but He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so He's waiting. And we live in this period of waiting between the comings of Jesus. And what's our mission in this period? Pray and don't lose heart. Have you ever given up praying for something that you've been praying for a long time? You know, you're praying for... for God to deliver someone into salvation that you love. And you say, Lord, how long am I going to keep praying this? Don't lose heart. Jesus told this parable to say, if the unrighteous judge finally gives it, will not God? We want to say, Lord, bring your justice, bring your goodness, bring your answer. All of these things are ways that we sometimes are tempted to lose heart. Let me show one verse to you from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This phrase is found again in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul, who says, so we do not lose heart. We don't lose heart. Why? Even though our outer self is wasting away, everybody old says, yeah, our inner self is being renewed day by day. 
For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We get eternity. We get temporary suffering. We get the travail of this life. We don't look to things that are seen. Our eyes are not primarily on the things of this life, on what we can see now, but on the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. Everything that we experience here is going to pass away. But the things that are unseen are eternal. So we don't lose heart. We know where we're going. We know what's going to happen. In the in-between of the two comings of Christ, we will have tribulation. But we pray and don't lose heart. Who's with me? Listen, if you've given up heart, if you've lost heart, to pray. Let's listen to the words of Jesus. He told us this parable that we ought always to pray and not lose heart. I want to encourage you to do that. We have an advocate who's praying for us, and he is in heaven. He has passed through his suffering, and he ascended into heaven. If you have a moment, keep your finger here. Turn to the right in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 4, and let me show you that while we're being called to pray right now, Jesus himself is praying for us. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. So listen, if you're in the place today where you're losing heart, this verse reminds us that Jesus knows full well what it is to be discouraged. Remember in the garden? My soul is deeply troubled, he said. He sweat drops of blood. He knew turmoil. But, verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. When it's our time to come before the throne, let's draw near and know that the one who's sitting there is one who has suffered in every way as we are. He's been tempted in every way as we are, and he is there praying for us, and we can pray to him. And the invitation is pray and pray and pray and don't lose heart. And that takes faith. If I could just draw you back to one thing we said last week, the disciples cried out to Jesus in chapter 17, verse 5 and 6, increase our faith. Remember that? Increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, just a small living organism, small faith in a great God, not much, just small, but living seed of faith. Then you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. We made the point last week that there was no deforestation going on with the disciples. They were not marching around doing tricks with trees in the first century. What Jesus was saying is there can be some deeply rooted things in your life, like a loss of hope or depression or anxiety or sinful lust, greed, anger, 
dishonesty that's deeply rooted in you and you say, Lord, give me faith and God will give faith to uproot things from you and throw them as far as the east is from the west and take them out of your life. Lord, give us faith. Deliver us from evil for yours is the kingdom and the power forever. Deliver us. This woman, widow, poor, with no resources, kept going to this judge saying, Lord, deliver me. And God says, you keep praying, God will deliver you, right? Listen, the first lesson on prayer, which is the work of God's people until he comes again, is to pray in faith with persistence. He tells a second parable, and there's a second lesson about prayer. It's to pray with humility. And so he goes quickly to the next parable. He also told a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Again, Luke tells us that there are two kinds of people in this parable. There are people who are proud and are self-reliant, and they're doing everything they can for self-improvement to make themselves better in the sight of God. They trust in themselves that they were righteous, and they look down on other people as a way of bolstering their own position. Verse 9, two went up to the temple to pray. I don't have the other verses on the screen, but the rest of verse 9, uh, rest of verse 10 and 11 says this, one was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee standing by himself prayed one way. And I can imagine his voice went something like this. Dear God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I have. And you can just smell the contempt and the arrogance and the self-approval and here is a man standing so others can see him affirming himself and crediting himself with his self-improvement in such a way that he he's standing to be recognized more by men than others i'm reminded of what jesus said of the pharisees in Luke 16, 15, he said, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. I mean, it's a stifling kind of arrogance that a man is standing before God, telling God why God should give him the answers to his prayer, because I've done all of these things for you. And yet, sometimes that's a little trap we fall into. Lord, you know how faithful I've been. Couldn't you just answer my prayer? Can't I? Haven't I done these things? And there's just a picture of a self-reliance and an arrogance in this prayer that is rejected by God. But the tax collector, verse 13, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven and beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I like the description that the tax collector is standing far off. And the picture is the acknowledgement that I don't belong in proximity to God. I, I know my place before God. Whereas the Pharisee said, oh, God, you know who I am. You know how great I am. The tax collector says, I, I don't even want to look to heaven. I'm unworthy. 
and he beat his breast. This was a symbol of contrition and grief. At a funeral, you beat your breast. It was where your heart was. And your heart is the inner control center. It's as if he's saying, my heart is desperately wicked. I know I'm estranged from God for who I am. And the only cry he has is, God, just let your mercy be on me. And you get a picture of one who is self-approved in his own mind before God and one who knows that unless God has mercy on me, I cannot find God's grace. I'm a broken sinner. And the verdict comes in verse 14. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. And then this axiom, which is always true, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. It is impossible to prop yourself up before God and ask Him to approve you for all that you've done. The only way into the presence of God is to say, Lord, be merciful to me. I have failed you in so many ways, and I ask for your mercy over my life. And I pray in abject humility and say, Lord, would you forgive me of my sins and receive me? And that's the one who's justified. One justifies himself to other people, and one is justified by God, declared righteous by God, because he falls in, in utter humility before God and said, unless I have mercy, I'm lost. It's appropriate that we're going to take communion this morning, because communion is the picture of humbling ourselves before God in the way that would say, I need your mercy in order to live eternally. I need your forgiveness in the sins of my life. It's not the man who's good in his own eyes. It's not the woman who is good in her own eyes who is justified by God, but the one who knows she's a sinner in need of God's mercy who is saved. Jesus told parables that people would not stop praying and they would not lose hope. It's praying with persistence and faith and praying with humility, oh Lord God, be merciful to me. I have a friend who um, was a philosophy student at CU, has gone on to be a professor at a university, and he taught me that he would pray regularly every day, just this simple prayer, get out of bed and say this prayer. Two or three times until his mind got wrapped around it. Lord Jesus, my Savior, have mercy on me. Lord Jesus, my Savior, have mercy on me. Lord Jesus, my Savior, have mercy on me. And then he would start his day. And he said, when I drift, at 10 o'clock in the morning, I would just say, Lord Jesus, my Savior, have mercy on me. Lord Jesus, my Savior, have mercy on me. What's he doing? He's just getting things back in alignment. I know who you are. You are the righteous, loving, gracious, merciful God. And I know who I am. I'm a sinner, having been forgiven by the grace of Jesus Christ. And when I know who I am, then I'm, I'm aligned. And, and prayer is the important work of my life until you come again. If I didn't pray, I would totally lose hope. 
And so I pray. You might study this week Psalm 51. It's a great psalm of confession in which David says, O Lord, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David had sinned against all kinds of people, but the first place of infraction was with God. And he concludes Psalm 51 with, the sacrifices of God are a broken and a contrite spirit. And that's the way I'd like us to go to communion this morning, just with a deep sense of, I know who God is, and I trust Him. And I know who I am. I'm a sinner forgiven by His grace. Be merciful to me implies that I need God's covering of my sin. But thankfully, Jesus did that on the cross. And He died for all of us that we would trust in Him. But if you've never come to Jesus and opened up your life to Him and said, Lord Jesus, I admit I'm a sinner in need of your forgiveness, this would be the great morning to do it. Let's pray together. If you're helping to serve communion, would you come? Maybe the first thing that you might say this morning to God is simply this. Oh, Lord Jesus, please have mercy on me. Let there be no shred of self-reliance, of self-justification, of propping myself up for my own good works, but let me cling to Christ alone. And let this experience of communion be the church's expression that it is in Jesus alone we trust for our salvation. And Lord, I pray for any who come into church today discouraged, having lost heart, wondering why their prayers are not answered. And I pray that you would meet those disappointments of soul with a comfort and assurance that you are a righteous judge, that you will bring justice and all things right, and that you will sustain those who draw near to the throne of grace to receive mercy, to help in time of need. Lord Jesus, our Savior, have mercy on us. And as we eat and drink today, we pray that our own hearts will be nourished to believe you and that you will be worshipped in heaven. For your broken body for the bread that we will eat that is a reminder that in your flesh you bore our sins. In the piercing, scourging, beating, the piercing and the death of Jesus, our sins were atoned for so that mercy and justice could be given to us. For all of this, we thank you and eat in worship. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll distribute the bread, and then we'll eat together.